Welcome to a Kessler Foundation Spinal Cord Injury Grand Rounds podcast featuring Dr. Reggie Edgerton. This special Spinal Cord Injury Grand Rounds is entitled Hypothesized Mechanisms for Improved Motor Function with Spinal Neuromodulation. Dr. Edgerton is currently the Director of the Neuromuscular Research Laboratory and a Distinguished Professor of the Departments of Integrative Biology and Physiology, Neurobiology, and Neurosurgery. He has been teaching and conducting research at UCLA for over 40 years. His research is focused on how the neural networks in the lumbar spinal cord of mammals, including humans, regain control of standing, stepping, and voluntary control of fine movements after paralysis, and how can these motor functions be modified by chronically imposing activity-dependent interventions after spinal cord injury. This presentation was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith on Friday, July 21, 2017 at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Main Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey, and was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Spinal Cord Injury System, which is supported by a grant from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research, Nidler Grant Number 90SI5026. Nidler is a center within the Administration for Community Living, Department of Health, and Human Services. Let's listen in. I appreciate the time to um, go over some of the observations that our team and related teams have made related to the general concept of neuromodulation. And neuromodulation, you see it everywhere now, so you must wonder, and even I wonder, what is neuromodulation, the way it's been used to cover so many different uh, phenomena. And so I'll talk to you about how we're using and what I think, uh, well, our, our definition and uh, functional definition of neuromodulation, and it, it's not really that uh, complicated. But after decades of experiments with uh, with humans, mice, rats, cats, monkeys, uh, a lot of ideas in the last ten years uh, have have I think come to fruition is really telling us that what we've assumed to be the case with a number of, of uh, concepts is not quite true. And so this has opened up a lot of potential for new ways to approach recovery of, uh, of spinal cord injury. And I'll t- tell you what some of those concepts are and the ones that we're questioning and pretty sure that we, we can question. And uh, in this effort, uh, we have a startup company to try to build the devices to take advantage of the new physiology that we have observed in animals and in humans. And it's still amazing to me how um, uninformed uh, people in general are about the spinal cord and what it can do and what it's for and generally it's thought to pass information from the brain to the end organs to the muscles and to the bladder and, and so forth uh, but I think the the uh, more accurate way to see uh, to consider what the spinal cord is in terms of its neuronal networks is really simply an extension of the brain but if you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, 
and I think this is the more accurate way to look at it, is that the brain is an extension of the spinal cord. Because the, you, you look at uh, very simple animals, and you see what they do, and they do it without a really impressively large uh, motor cortex, for example. And so these animals have lived for millions of years, generation to generation. They've mated, they eat, they protect themselves, they do everything. So how can they do this? You have dinosaurs discovered that have the brain that weigh tons and live 200 millions of years, and they have a brain that's the size of a plum. And so how can this small amount of tissue control such a massive amount? Well, I think the, what <clears throat> I'm trying to emphasize is that there's a lot of uh, very uh, complicated functions occurring in, in the spinal cord. This is a sketch by Scheibel, and Scheibel published years ago, but this is just the idea of the show from the dorsal to the ventral part of the gray matter within the spinal cord. If you cut through here, you see these uh, structures where the information is coming in from the dorsum and eventually to the motor pool. And this motor pool here is what is, is uh, uh, forming the movement. The other thing that, just to keep you honest in terms of thinking how complex the network is, this is like if you're looking down the barrel of a cat's bottom cord and each motor pool was labeled with a different color what you see, a couple of interesting things. Number one, uh, you clearly have clusters of motor neurons that go to a single muscle, but at the same time you see they're highly overlapped. So if you think, try to think of this as an actual circuit, it's almost impossible to realize how this circuit works. And, and I frankly feel more comfortable th thinking of, of rather than circuits as networks. And these networks are changing constantly. Even within a step cycle, the networks are changing their properties, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Now, just a little bit of history. These ideas did not just pop up uh, arbitrarily. These are ideas that really the science has led us to uh, uh, to the point where how we're interpreting the spinal cord and the potential for recovery. Everyone would recognize that sensory information is important for, for motor control. There's no one that would really question that, but I don't think but most of us realize just how important it can be. And I'll show you some evidence to, to, uh, to demonstrate that. Now, the way I got on this trail I'm sorry to say, uh, uh, more than 40 years ago, <laughs> say, how, how come it took so long for these ideas to, to evolve? Uh, and uh, I guess one way to look at it is spinal cord is much smarter than I am. But there's this, this uh, idea or concept of central pattern generation, which is very important. And it, uh, I think, is a, a basic, a, a very fundamental, uh, important part of the concept of automoticity. And the automoticity, uh, 
I think this is an important concept for us because the central question that I've been asking for all these years is to what extent after a spinal cord injury can we take advantage of the automoticity? In other words, how much specific information do we have to have from the brain to step or to stand or to do basic movements? And I think it's relatively little. And so the brain, maybe a little bit of overstatement, but the way I look at it is the brain is kind of is telling the spinal cord what it wants to do, but the spinal cord knows how to do it once you once it uh, receives a message from the brain. Spinal cord knows exactly how to do it, and and in great detail, <clears throat> and it can do this. And another uh, analogy that I think that helps in thinking about how important the proprioception is, the sensory information enabling this automoticity is uh, every time you pick up your cell phone, like I did this morning, find out this awful uh, uh, information about how far it was here, uh, that uh, the first thing the phone wants to know when you're going to pick a, a, a place to go, it wants to know where you are. And there's, there's really interesting evidence that without proprioception, you're very close to being paralyzed. So even with all the intact information going to the, to, uh, available to the spinal cord, without proprioception, the person functionally becomes uh, uh, virtually paralyzed. Uh, you can use, you, they can lear, learn to use visual information, but every movement has to have some visual input to where you are. The point is, you can't get directions on where to go unless you know where you are. And the pro- that's why the proprioception is so important. The proprioception, every movement that you're making, is really dependent on every muscle of your body. When I move my hand, I'm not just the body, my brain and spinal cord can't be concerned about just moving my hand. It has to be concerned how much load is on my one leg, how much load is on the other leg. It has to know exactly where you are. If it doesn't know where you are, is the brain is kind of helpless. <clears throat> so, uh, this automoticity is very important. Another uh, series of important experiments uh, in the late 60s and, and 70s from the uh, Mark Schick lab in Moscow also was pointing toward the importance of this automoticity because what they did in these CAT experiments is that they could stimulate a certain place in the brain stem, the mesencephalic region, stimulate tonically, not give a really a detailed signal, but just a tonic signal, just turn it on, stimulate it at 30 hertz or, or whatever, and then the cat would, uh, a decerebrated cat would start to walk. <clears throat> so a simple signal given a very complex, ending up with a very complex movement, uh, in part because not only the brain stem, but also what can happen in the, um, um, in the spinal cord. The other key part of all of this, and this is where what you are doing fits in and is going to be so much even more important in the future than it is now. Rehab is a key to this whole concept of, of recovering. 
And, and the re reason the rehab is working is one of the reasons is because the spinal cord can learn. So the learning of motor skills, even if there's some input from the brain, the learning is not just occurring in what most people have thought for many years, the cerebellum. There's some experiments to show that learning does occur in the cerebellum, but you don't extend that conclusion to say that's the only place in the central nervous system where learning occurs. Learning is occurring in multiple networks throughout the brain. That is, it's responding to whatever you do all the time. It's adapting. Um, so, we, when we started working with the cats and the rats, we, to get them to stand and, and to walk, <clears throat> we uh, found out that we really had to do something else besides what we were doing in the cat. In the cat, we didn't need to stimulate or neuromodulate. We could get them to step or stand without. But in the rat and mouse, luckily, uh, they, that forced us to start working with the neuromodulation. And um, so, uh, of course, we didn't know much about what neuromodulation was, but we knew from experiments long ago that you could put electrodes on the dorsum of the spinal cord and stimulate tonically, and you could get a stepping pattern. So uh, we gathered a, a group of scientists uh, from all over the world to, to ask the question, uh, are we ready to try this in humans? Can we try neuromodulation to see if it'll work? We knew we didn't have the technology available to do it, but we knew there was a technology that would, might be close enough we could show proof of principle. And this is work that I'm sure you're familiar with in collaboration with Susan Harkeman at University of Louisville. Uh, we had worked together uh, for uh, about 15 years uh, at, at UCLA in trying to develop uh, some of the procedures for locomotor training. Now, in this process, we quickly came also to the idea, unlike the experiments that had been everyone had been doing for, for decades, but you actually stimulate the cord to induce stepping. But we found that we could neuromodulate the spinal cord so we didn't have to induce stepping. We enabled stepping. That means we can neuromodulate, we can change the properties of the spinal cord so that it can step or it can stand or it can do a lot of things, uh, but you don't induce it, you enable it. So, you, so you activate the circuitry, and then you let other sources of information, such as the brain, but you say, well, a complete spinal individual, how can you do this if there's no connection between the brain and the spinal cord? That was the other surprise that came up, and that is uh, actually every patient that we've studied so far in studying the upper limb and the lower limb that's classified clinically as a motor complete, Asia A or, or B, every one of them has regained some level of voluntary control. So that means this lesion that we have assumed, what we've assumed this lesion to be in a complete spinal cord uh, 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 paralysis is not what we have thought it to be. It can't be. 
So we have to go back and re-examine what really is this lesion? How can it recover so rapidly? And I'll show you some of the experiments related to that. So again, uh, it's very important to think about this in terms of we're, <laughs> this is not a stimulation where you induce movement. It's fundamentally different than functional electrical stimulation where you stimulate the muscle. A lot of progress been made in doing that, a lot of advantages of doing that, but what you're doing is bypassing the circuitry of the spinal cord which serves as the control system. So this is the other idea of the automoticity. This automoticity is built into the spinal cord. So if you directly stimulate the muscle, you bypassed it. I've always been impressed of how abnormal the movements are when you try to mimic the activation, when you activate the muscle directly. And you, you can get some type of movement, but it's very robotic-like. In other words, we're not nearly as smart as the spinal cord in terms of being able to activate the motor pool so you get a smooth movement. That tells us that we need to utilize this exquisite control system that's within the spinal cord. Now you will read papers, uh, and this is one approach, is to go from signals from the brain to stimulate the muscle to control the movement. And the, the authors will say this is a huge advantage. We can bypass the spinal cord. And I say, mm, maybe not. Uh, if you can use the circuitry within the spinal cord, you have a huge advantage. So that's uh, the other thing about that's why we can, we can use this neuromodulation by uh, an enabling procedure. And then, <clears throat> as I said, we were surprised by the regaining of the voluntary control, but also the autonomic function. The story here is this woke us up also in realizing that as scientists you tend to reduce things to a smaller and smaller experiment to get rid of all the variables. But as you do that, you have to realize you're, you're eliminating a lot of useful information that tells you how the system really works. And so when you get a person standing, you get a person stepping, it brings in multiple control systems that's related to the autonomic function. And so we still have no idea how they are actually integrated, but it's very clear that once individual starts to stand, this brings in uh, the control of, of uh, other networks that's controlling other systems, such as temperature regulation, sweating, bladder, uh, cardiovascular control. As an integrated biologist, I look at this and say, wow, biology really is integrated, and, uh, but we just didn't appreciate it. So now I'm going <clears> to, <throat> now this view of what spinal cord injury is, is not, you don't read this in the textbooks. And I can't prove it, but I'm, like I often tell audience, don't, don't believe anything I say but think about it and question it. The reason I say that is because I think we've not made more progress more rapidly 
because we've gotten so caught up in certain dogma that's not true. And so, for example, no plasticity can occur after a year after the injury. No way that's true, given the evidence that's been accumulated in the last 10 to 15 years. That lesion is not what we thought it was, and so forth. So question, question every idea, especially the young scientists. All right, so here's a general idea, I think, of what we're seeing uh, with spinal cord injury. First of all, to move, you've got to get above this motor threshold. This, this is the, a curve that represents the force of a motor pool. You activate more motor units, you get more force. If you can't get above that line, you're paralyzed. If you're below that line, you don't know how far you are from uh, being uh, not paralyzed. But all this range here, the excitability below this range has generally been ignored by neurophysiology, thinking that motor control really starts when you get to this line. But there's a, I think there's a much more attention we need to pay to what happens below, because one of the things I think happens with spinal cord injury, at least in many cases, is, is that, um, that uh, this rest in potential here changes. Now there are two things that the brain, only two things the brain has to do to make every movement that you make. It has to make two decisions. It has to make a decision of how much force it wants from a given motor pool or a given muscle. And it has to determine how to coordinate those motor pools. Those are the only thing, two things. So you have to have coordination. To get coordin the coordination comes from the interneurons. The motor neurons themselves, they just do what they're told to do. Uh, they, they can't coordinate muscles themselves. So the coordination and the level of recruitment is fundamental, and that's what we have to achieve. And so if there's an injury, what we think, there are a couple of things that happen. One is we think this level of excitability goes down, for at least for some time, and we also think that there's a hyperconnectivity. Too many things get connected. You lose the specificity of movement. So normally you can move a finger, you can move a hand or, or ankle, but in severe incomplete injuries, the typical thing when they try to move, uh, both legs may move or multiple joints move. They've, too many things have gotten connected. Now that's goes against the grain of thinking about what paralysis is. Paralysis is you usually think you can't get you you can't get the activation to the muscle. But it's more than that. You can't get coordination either because there's too much connectivity. It's almost like the spinal cord is responding like a muscle does to denervation where you get this uh, hyper uh, uh, connectivity for a while and increases in, in, in uh, these fibrillations and so forth. So anyway, I think both of these things are happening. We have pretty good evidence that, that these two things happen. Can neuromodulation and training uh, do anything about this? Um, 
and, and with the training, you can't train if you don't have the modulation. And so we think one thing that happens with the modulation is we can get this threshold back up closer to the normal, and, and these new connections become functionally <coughs> pruned. Uh, pruned. Now, um, this implies an anatomical mechanism. It's not necessarily, probably not this simple, but how you withdraw that uh, um, excessive aberrant connectivity, we don't know. But when, when the animals are trained and when the humans are, are trained, the coordination improves and you do get more specificity. So uh, some evidence for this, for example, is as you train a spinal rat to, to step, the number of neurons that get activated goes down as they become better. So what's happening, your nervous system is more specifically activating in a better coordinated way so that you don't have every, so many things activated. Things that you don't need that's not really uh, helpful in the activation. So as, as the animals step better, uh, the, there are fewer neurons, inner neurons in the spinal cord that are activated. There, We've made this observation uh, several times, and we now have observations in <clears throat> of uh, this in uh, the rhesus monkey over a period of six months. We really we see exactly this same thing. Now, of course, there's a lot of emphasis on the importance of the cortex in movement, but at the same time, we know that we can accomplish a lot without any of the input from the cortex. We can accomplish even more if we just have input from the brainstem. And then we can accomplish quite a bit with just the spinal cord. The reason that we probably can do this is because the nervous system has so much redundancy. There, if you lose part of the nervous system, there's other ways the nervous system can deal with it, and there are many, many examples of this. The point here is to illustrate that we know that if you cut half the spinal cord here, half the spinal cord a little bit uh, a distance away, you've eliminated all of the long descending input to the spinal cord and you're just left with the proprio-spinal inner neurons th throughout the gray matter. So if you can get information, this information, a lot of this information will still get to this part uh, but it can't get any further. We don't have to have regeneration from here all the way down to the lumbosacral. If we can just get here, we think, if you can just get here in most of the lesions, even clinically complete lesions, that the system can make new connections and get to the spinal cord. And then you say, well, you've lost all the detail. Well, again, maybe you don't need that detail. Maybe it's just like stimulating the brainstem tonically. You get the activation, get the information down here, and then with proprioception, the spinal cord knows what to do and you can get the coordinated movement. In this particular model in animals, the, the animals, if you just cut halfway at uh, once, the animal can recover great locomotion within, within two weeks. Uh, if you cut twice and with a little bit of time in between, about the same thing can occur. Now, 
why am I looking at this as a, a, you say, well, this doesn't happen in real life. This is not the lesion. That's true. But what I think is true is that most of the lesions cover two to three segments of the spinal cord. So it's an area that is blocked. But within that block, we think there's some cells that have been dormant and not functional. And when we stimulate, we can activate those. So eventually, new connections get made. They're obviously not the original ones, but I don't think there's nothing that we know that would tell us they have to be the original connections. So the idea of the worry about are the connections going to make be are, are the connections to be made that's going to be made are the correct ones. They're probably a mixture, but I think again with the training the system provides some guidance as to how that plasticity is going to proceed. So let's look at the uh, learning, the automoticity, and uh, this is just to give you an idea of how simple the learning uh, uh, phenomenon is in the spinal animals. Is in, in the top here, you, you see the trajectory of the pole of a rat, spinal rat stepping on a treadmill, and these animals have not been trained. But if you train them, the trajectory looks like this. So that's basically what happens when anybody learns a skill. You become more accurate and more precise. And that's what the nervous system is doing here. We just with neuromodulation. Now these, this experiment really drove home to us how important sensory information is, proprioception. And if you have the treadmill belt moving backward, then the, the animal, this is, again, this is spinal stimulation and pharmacological modulation. The animal steps forward. If you reverse the belt, it steps backwards. If you rotate the animal on the treadmill, it starts to step sideways appropriately, perfectly appropriately to the angle that they are on the treadmill. There is no source of information going to the spinal cord to tell it to do this except from proprioception and cutaneous information. So that information can be processed. This is the amazing thing that we need to appreciate. This information, of an ensemble of extremely complex dynamic signals going to the spinal cord is being processed in real time. We have no system that has anything close to that capability. In real time, all of this information is being processed. To what advantage can we use, use this concept in order to regain function? That, again, that's the general idea. Now, how is this possible? I think conceptually it has to be something like this. So if you think of the animal stepping sideways and you might have sensory ensembles that's representative here and it's activating these interneurons and then activating these motor neurons but as the ensemble switches, moves, you get different interneurons and different motor neurons and so forth. So it might look like something like this, 
where uh, the as the animal is stepping uh, at a given uh, direction, it's activating different inner neurons. I didn't point it out, but when you look at that, those rats stepping, the same muscles are active in every one of those movements. You don't activate one set of muscles for backward and another for sideways and forward. The same, basically the same muscles are active in, in, in both cases. What's different? What's different is how the motor pools are coordinated. That shows you just how important coordination is in defining what the, the movement's going to be. So where is this information coming from? We know our textbooks uh, and hundreds of papers have been published about the different types of sensory endings in muscles and tendons and joints and so forth. And so what the spinal cord is listening to is, you might say it's visualizing exactly where the legs are at a given time. And how does it know where it is? It's not, what's not important is what's coming from each one of these. What's important is what's coming from all of them. All of them are helping to form this picture, this art in a given instant that's constantly changing. So the, these, we've, maybe we have all of these types of sensory information, not to say, well, this records forces, this records velocity and so forth. Spinal cord doesn't care about that. Spinal cord just wants to know where the leg is. How does it find out? It has every type of sensor it needs to, to record every mechanical event that's occurring in the t tissue. And so what's important is all of the pixels of this picture. And so it knows where the leg is because of knowing the whole thing. Now, let's go to step in and get some idea of what I've said so far. How does it fit into stepping? Now, normally, when you're going to step, your legs, you flex your legs, so you get activation of the flexor motor pools. You, you get flexion, and in order to do that, you've got to get the threat above the threshold to get the flexors activated. But what happens, as soon as the foot touches down, what activates the flexors shuts it down immediately. Stance. You can't stand if your flexors are, are uh, active. So that timing, the spinal cord knows that when you touch down, you start the load. This is why the spinal cord knows about loading, is because the same thing that activates this is also inhibiting this so you have a stance phase. Now that was what happened normal, normally, but in the uh, spinal cord situation, go back to that lowering of the rest and potential of these networks. You can have the same thing happen, but you're not above the threshold, so you don't, nothing happens. But if you neuromodulate and get the excitability back up to here, 
then it, you can actually use the proprioception so that um, you can get the flexion. Now, also going back to what's happening below the threshold, this has also been interesting. And it shows clearly that the neuromodulation does not have to be, and probably should not be, one that's strong enough that it will actually induce contraction of a muscle. So this experiment was done by Parag Gad in the, in the lab, actually several years ago, and it's published. Uh, so what he did is he, uh, the, the rats that were completely spinalized, he, in some cases, he stimulated them 80% of the threshold. So he was 20% below the motor threshold. No, no muscle was being activated by the stimulation. And when he stimulated the animals when they're in the cage, the bottom line is these animals were five times more active when they were stimulated at 80% of the threshold than they were uh, when they were not stimulated at all. So this neuromodulation, not just above the threshold, the neuromodulation that's occurring below the threshold is very important component of how the movement is going to be generated. And this is just simply showing the spontaneous EMG in, in the um, rested state, but then when they're stimulated not to induce the activity, but to enable it, you have activity that's um, more than threefold normal. Now, see, the interesting thing here, if you're stimulated at 30 hertz, you don't see a 30 hertz signal in there. The signals, this is a, a more normal type of activation of the motor pool. So if you're stimulating above the threshold, you're inducing the movement, and then you're going to get an activation just when the stimulation is occurring. So what we try to do, we have to stimulate at that level at, in the beginning for most of the time. But what we do is try to lower that voltage as soon as we can. Lower the voltage so that um, we minimize the amount of uh, inducing and, and enable more of the control. So five times more active just by uh, elevating the basic uh, uh, level of excitability. Now just to quickly go over the results that have been reported uh, with the epidural stimulation in the first four patients. Uh, maybe many of you are familiar with this, but in, in uh, Dr. Harkema's lab, uh, when, when the individuals start learn how to, to uh, learn that they could get voluntary control, notice that you've got the burst of EMG, you've got the forces generated, he broke the cable, and so you no longer have forces, but you see a large number of contractions. This is not just a small movement, and just a few times, and then the person fatigues. So the person can generate these rather forceful movements, and they can adjust the magnitude or the forces that are generated based on the level of sound and based on vision when they're looking at, at a, uh, uh, a target of how much force. In other words, they can estimate whether they are going to generate a small force, a medium force, and large force. So this is really showing now that, that the brain is tuned in with the spinal cord. 
So now we have a new situation. Now this network up here has, is clearly reorganizing. And this network down here is clearly reorganizing. And presumably the best result is going to come when the two are talking to each other. And that's a synergistic reorganization. That's the, the kind of thing that we need to learn more about how to make that happen. And we uh, basically are simply at the conceptual level and, and not very far in really understanding the mechanism of that. Now this one, the stand-in, these subjects were able to regain stand-in before uh, the voluntary activity or before the, uh, before the stepping. And the standing, uh, uh, we were excited about uh, this, this happening. But the, one of the points I'd like to make here is for years I've heard that uh, why are you even doing this? Because the spinal cord, uh, you, you have no source of control in uh, posture equilibrium, a balance. But just as the spinal cord knows how to step in the stand, it also knows how to uh, to modulate the circuitry of the spinal cord. If the load comes over here, it push you back over here and so forth. So that has to be relearned also. So the point is that yes, you can regain some ability for balance. It's not normal, but it is, is, is an improvement. So uh, standing and voluntary activity can be done, and just to show that the enabling phenomenon, you see constant stimulation here, but you only see forces develop when you activate voluntarily, the person decides to move, even though the stimulation is there, you're not getting any movement until the person decides to get information from the brain. So what the stimulation has done is elevated it closer to the threshold, and then the brain comes in and gets it above the threshold. If you stimulate too much, you can stimulate too much. Uh, and so basically you have this concept again, the lower threshold and, uh, and, and, and then if you modulate it up. So, okay, so uh, just to uh, look at this more carefully as to what's happening, the other uh, general idea that we recognize is that in this neuromodulation, we're trying to achieve, a, you might say, a window of opportunity. Uh, we have to modulate to a level that's relatively narrow. We don't know how narrow it is, but we know you can activate too much and you can activate too little. So you've got to tune it so that you, again, so that you can utilize that control system that's within the spinal cord. So when you get to a certain level, the person was trying to move and couldn't move. Increase the voltage, nothing, nothing, until you get to about seven volts. And, and in this particular case, at seven volts, the individual, uh, I'm still just amazed at that of, of this instant. <laughs> we got to, to seven volts and he said, I feel connected. So we don't know the physiology, obviously, of that connection, 
but at this level, he was accurate. He felt that he was going to be able to move, and then you increase the voltage, and you can increase force until you get to a point where there's too much activation, and, and the, uh, you can't control the muscles properly. In more recent experiments, in the upper limb that shows this even more clearly is when we're neuromodulating the upper limb. And there's a, uh, <coughs> there's a uh, one way we train the individuals is with the music glove that was developed by um, David Reichensmeyer at UC Irvine. And in this, they wear this glove, and when they touch the screens, the, the, the strings of, of a, a virtual guitar, and they have to hear the music, so they are trying to, we're registering how much movement we're getting in individual fingers. And the voltage that it takes to improve this is much less than it is if you're looking for force. So this is another challenge that we're going to have in the future, is how to develop the technologies so it can, in some way, in some closed-loop system, we can uh, measure something that will tell us how to change the stimulation parameters that will be better adapted to what the person is trying to do at the time. That's in the future, but technically, and, and based on what we know physiologically, I don't see any reason why this can't happen, in it, and I'm sure it will happen eventually. So uh, th this, again, the, what I'd like to emphasize is with these new things that we've observed and others have observed, uh, it's opened up so many new questions, and we're just at the beginning of trying to <clears throat> understand how to take how to take full advantage of these new physiological phenomenon. But again, uh, if you're <clears throat> if you're intact, there's no injury, there's no problem getting above the threshold. If you're if you're below that line, you're paralyzed. You don't know how close you are to not being paralyzed, because if you don't. You could be 2% below that line and still be completely paralyzed. Uh, but we know that if you can enhance the excitability and then ask the person to move, they can generate a significant levels of force. Now, so there are two devices that we're trying to develop. One is a new generation of epidural stimulator. The epidural stimulators have been on the market for a long time, for, for a few decades, uh, primarily for pain. Um, and that's what we used in, in the initial experiments in Louisville. But we knew those devices were not smart enough to do what we wanted it to do. It was good enough for, for pain, but it was not based on our animal experiments. We knew we wanted to be able to use other variables in the stimulation parameters. So, but it was good enough to show proof of principle. But for right now, we're trying to develop a new generation epidural implant. The epidural is simply electrode arrays placed over the dural. And it's a, a surgical procedure that's fairly common, done in thousands of individuals, but not with the type of device that's needed. But another uh, approach has been stimulating transcutaneously. And as we go further and further, we become more and more impressed with this capability. So we can place electrodes, just off the shelf electrodes, 
at different points along the spine and stimulate with uh, a, a novel stimulation pattern and we can get enough current to the spinal cord so we can neuromodulate the circuitry similar to what we do with epidural stimulation. Of course, the difference is uh, how much current you have to use and what is the specificity of the area that you're activating. So that there are a lot of things that we have to, to figure out there in terms of modeling where the current's going and so forth. But the bottom line is, uh, <clears throat> look at it this way. There's one approach, and I don't know which is best, but all these approaches are being pursued. One approach is to go directly or very close to the motor pools. You have indwelling electrodes that are going close to the motor pool. Others are just placing the electrode array on top of the spinal cord under the dura. Another one is on top of the spinal cord above the dura. And then uh, you get further away with the transcutaneous stimulation, which is the technique I'm talking about here. It has obvious advantages and maybe some disadvantages. And what we're proposing is we need both. For one patient may need this, another patient may need this. If we have both of those, then we can make a decision as to which may be better for a given function. So in this, t in this particular uh, study, we have the, the, the basic question was here is to how much function can we get out of the nervous system in generating a rhythmic step-in-like pattern uh, in a, what we call a zero-G device. And while we're stimulating the spinal cord, at now we know we can get much better results if we stimulate at multiple sites. And then <clears throat> at, when we did this, and we, uh, this is, gives you an idea of, of what, it, what the experiment looks like. And in the first uh, session, it looks, um, I think it's moving. No. So, in the, in, so I'm going to show you what happens in the first session, and then I'm going to show you data of what happens after 18 sessions. And you ask the person to move voluntarily, and they're trying so hard. They're lying on the table. They're wiggling around. You can't hold them. And so you do get a, a little bit of a swing momentum in the leg, but you'll see what happens when, and then so after we ask them to voluntarily move, then we stimulate them to see if we can induce the movement. And then we stimulate them and say, okay, combine voluntary and stimulation. And this was the movement that we got in the first session in the individual been, this particular individual, I think he was, had been injured for about three years. So, but then we started training. Uh, once a week for, and, and these data are published in Journal Neurotrauma, you can look at the details. And so I'll point you to, you know, after the training, the, this is what you see with the voluntary movement. And then you, voluntary plus stimulation, in this particular individual with this combination, this is the movement that you got. So this, again, uh, this is showing, uh, to me, this seemed like pretty impressive level of recovery of the, of the 
neural control of this rhythmic activity. And <clears throat> if you look at the, the first session, pre-training, uh, stimulating at different combinations of sites, you see uh, very little oscillation or none in the EMG, uh, but in the stimulation you begin to see, you can see some oscillation with the stimulation. But after the 18 sessions and we added a drug in the last two weeks, uh, which is uh, uh, Buspirone, uh, we think that the Buspirone helps, but we think most of this is just for more, more training that occurred, and this is the type of movements that occurred. But if you look at these data quantitatively, the, these are, this is telling us, I think, uh, a very encouraging point here. So with relatively small amount of activation, you compare the first session and the last session. This is after four sessions. So what can the person, what can the group do with just voluntary effort? They can move, get this much range in movement of the knee uh, with not even any stimulation. This is what you get with plus voluntary plus stimulation. These two are not significantly different. Some of the subjects do better with both at this point, and some do better with just without the stimulation. And the site of stimulation is also very important, and, and we, don't, we know that the site's important, but we don't know exactly uh, the precise sites yet. <clears throat> but see, just stimulation doesn't give you nearly what you can get with voluntary uh, and, uh, and voluntary plus stimulation. So that means that what has happened, we have modulated and in a, we've engaged, we've engaged circuitry that has not been active before. Networks are, are, are now, once they've been activated, then they can be trained. If you can't engage them, you can't train them. So if you just stimulate and you don't tell the spinal cord what you want it to do, like step, if you don't train it, you, don't, you get very little change. So we've stimulated animals and not trained them and they don't improve stepping. We give them a pharmacological agent that would facilitate stepping, but if you don't train them when you give it, it doesn't happen. This emphasizes further the importance of the training, the importance of the sensory information, because that's providing the guidance for the reorganization of the network. Because you're getting very direct guidance with that pattern proprioceptive information that's coming to the spinal cord, or what that new information is coming from the brain, and some combination of that. A similar thing happens with the upper limb. Uh, in, uh, at each session where they start, uh, increases, the, uh, their grip strength increases, and then with stimulation on the same day, it will get greater. The next session, they start at a higher level, stimulation, so they keep climbing in that way. So you've got a learning phenomenon and an enabling phenomenon and uh, you've got uh, reorganization occurring in the brain, occurring in the spinal cord. Now, uh, so I'd like to 
just uh, spend a, a couple of minutes on one individual and the, the data, some of these data have now been published in, in uh, two different manuscripts where uh, we're working with this uh, exoskeleton and there are a number of them on the market and I really don't know which one's better but this one uh, we selected to go with because it can measure the amount of work that the device is, is performing and the amount of work that the subject is doing. So the idea is, and I think many of the robotic devices should be designed with this kind of idea, is that <clears throat> you've got to allow the subject to participate to engage the circuitry. If you just passively move, then nothing is going to happen. So you've got to engage the circuitry. So we obviously tried transcutaneous stimulation and having the person to try to engage with the stimulation and actually trying to find out how the system is being activated when the stimulation is on, when it's off, also when it's on and telling the person not to try to walk and to try to walk because this is helping us to understand what's happening when information coming from the brain and what information is, what's, how the information being processed when it's maybe primarily from, from the periphery. So uh, you probably, uh, I'm sure you have some of these devices here and you can look at the um, person walking. He had been walking, I think, for at least a year. So we're not worried about uh, our results being impacted by what he was learning. He already knew how to step in the device. So then we, we would have him stepping with the stimulation on, with the stimulation off. And we did that <coughs> for uh, uh, multiple sessions, but after five sessions, we did basically the same experiment that we did with uh, Dr. Harkema in, in Louisville and see if uh, they could regain voluntary control. This individual had been paralyzed for about five years. And <clears throat> we, uh, we asked him to try to flex uh, before the stimulation was on, and he couldn't do it. And then we turned the stimulation on and we asked him to move. Uh, and, and we didn't ask him to move, but the stimulation on did not make him move. But then when we signaled for him to move, he moved. So again, we didn't induce the activity. After five sessions he re and, and five years, he, re he regained this voluntary capability. This shows uh, just an example of, in the swing phase, uh, how much work the motor is doing and how much work the subject is doing uh, with the combination of the stimulation and the drug. The point is simply in this effort to flex the leg to start the swing phase, the person had begun to learn how to facilitate so that less current had to go to the motor to initiate the step cycle. Cervical stimulation, again, we're doing rat experiments and uh, a rat is a rat and a human is a human, but uh, so we always think this is a good baseline to start with and this is before the injury, what they look like uh, when they, so they can reach and grab pretty effectively. And then after one week, 
they really have a hard time even getting the limb lifted so that they, they can reach out. And then uh, after six weeks, we have the sham treatment. This is what they look like at six weeks. A little better, but still not very good. Ineffective, basically. And then in the animals that were receiving buspirone during the six-week six period, this is what they... Not perfect, not as good, but after six weeks of enabling the system uh, with just the drug. We've subsequently done this with stimulation and then stimulation plus the drug, and then stimulation plus the drug plus the training. And the results are basically coming out like we would have predict them, predicted based on the hind limb data. So this is telling us that there's really not anything that's fundamentally different in terms of its responsiveness to neuromodulation from the cervical and the lumbosacral. A lot of people were skeptical that the cervical would work. In fact, we got a review of a grant proposal just last week. One person said it's just impossible for this to work in the cervical spinal cord, even though we showed evidence that it was working. They were so convinced that you don't have a central pattern generator, and therefore it can't work. It works. So, <clears throat> the now the thing that's exciting about the uh, upper limb, of course, is relatively small changes can make a big difference in, in what the person can and can't do. So um, we've done, uh, have started, uh, we've had a, uh, several experiments now with the upper limb, uh, in, with the implantable device and the transcutaneous device. And this is with the transcutaneous device. If you look, there's relatively small movement that you could see in the finger. So we're measuring the amount of movement uh, with, a, with a known resistance here. So you see the EMG pattern. And then um, after 15 training sessions in, in this particular individual, you look at the amount of movement that you get. It looks small, but What's the significance of it? That remains to be determined, but we've uh, monitored what the person does before and after these treatments, and it's significantly different. And then when you compare the two, a couple of things to note. One is this is the amount of force initially. That's the amount of force after 15 treatments. But notice the change in the pattern of the EMG. So once we, again, can get these networks working, that they, the, the brain is reorganizing as to how it's activated these motor pools and probably what is a more normal uh, pattern. And this is from human data. In the first session, force that's generated, and then at, without stimulation and with stimulation. And here is after uh, intervention. Uh, I think this is um, uh, eight sessions uh, you see the similar thing with a little greater force. 
of the average of eight subjects in the most recent data, uh, the average force of the grip strength of both arms uh, after, uh, after um, eight treatment sessions uh, increased uh, average of 17-fold in all the subjects. So wherever they, if they start really low, they still will increase and get to a certain point if you start a little bit higher. But these, all of these subjects started with generating less than five newtons of, uh, of force. And um, <clears throat> now, uh, getting back to the voluntary activity, I'll try to wind this up. I'm sorry that, that I have to held you up so long. But this is an experiment that we hope is going to help us to try to understand what, how the voluntary activity is, uh, is recovered. So what the, the animals are trained, they hear a sound, and then they pick up the leg. And this is without injury, so that's kind of, kind of a standard protocol. So the idea, can we get information from the brain can we recover information from the brain after an injury like we have in the human? And with the idea that you've got two to three segments to deal with, you do this double hemisection, and then after the double hemisection, post-injury, when you, you uh, have the sound, this is what happens normally, but after the injury, you get no response. But after, during the first couple of months after the injury, uh, we stimulate the cord uh, at, a, at a low threshold uh, for a couple of hours a day. And then after that point, what happens is if you turn the stimulator on, they get a response that's obviously associated with the sound, but not quite as tightly. It's a little more delayed and a little more variable. But the, end of the, the animal has relearned with the stimulation. You turn the stimulation off, and that's in red, and these spontaneous activity is not linked to the sound. You turn it back on, and you get this. You turn it off, you get this. You turn it on, it's very responsive. So clearly, that stimulation is enabling that animal to engage the circuitry that's necessary to get information from the brain to the spinal cord. Uh, bladder function. Uh, uh, I'm not going to show you any data now, but what we've done, uh, I'll tell you where we are with the bladder. Number one, uh, NIH uh, became very excited about the results that came from the Louisville subjects. Uh, they got more excited about the bladder than they did the, the standing and the voluntary activity. So they've got grant, grant support that was, uh, or grant proposals that were, uh, um, were, were uh, uh, funded, uh, or the money to fund uh, grants for, for animal and human experiments. So there's a lot of work being done now with the bladder. We all know how important that is for individuals with spinal cord injury. And getting back to the autonomic nervous system, all of those autonomic nervous systems we need to look at carefully. Amazing work 
and results are coming with control of blood pressure with these types of stimulation procedures that I think is going to make a huge difference. But uh, the bladder is showing <clears throat> a chronic effect, just like in the human subjects, there was improvement in bladder function in, in a, a number of the subjects, and the, the function that improved differed, differed a little bit uh, for, for each subject. But the th things have advanced now so that we can get, we and others are getting acute effects. In other words, we can stimulate the spinal cord that will enable the person to void and enable the person to sense the filling of the bladder. So that, we can, th so that autonomic system is also responding to the neuromodulation. Still got at, at the a very first stage of understanding this, but uh, I think uh, that is certainly an important target that some success will be reached. So just in summary, with the neuromodulation idea based on the automoticity, the central pattern generation idea, uh, the sense importance of the sensory information, the learning, the importance of the activity-dependent plasticity is fundamental to the whole thing, and then putting all this together and eventually getting this uh, for, for voluntary, uh, voluntary movement, uh, that's kind of how the, the thing has evolved. So, the, so it's not simple. We're combining many physiological and technical ideas here. And so, uh, it's, and, and I think the, the success of it is going to depend on how uh, well we can uh, can combine all those things. So to relearn, there must be engagement of the circuits. And how do you engage them? You engage them with stimulation, epidurally or transcutaneous or maybe otherwise, but you can also engage them with pharmacological uh, intervention and you can use different pharmacological interventions for different agonists and antagonists, different ways to do that. So again, what the message should be is that uh, you, you have uh, generated in, in your own mind about a hundred questions that need to be answered right off the bat because of these, because we have to look at the system in a new way. Uh, so there's, un, there's potential here that we, or I don't think any of us really realize that was available that we've, we've really got to get focused on. And again, Rehabilitation has to step up. This is this is critical that uh, the rehabilitation community uh, uh, is fully aware of the potential that's here. So, a lot of things, all of these potential things now need to be uh, examined. And I think we will see uh, improvement in the future. People that have contributed this, uh, are Roland Roy, Yuri Jarasmika, and Parag Gad, uh, are uh, a, a collaborator from Caltech, Joel Burdick, with expert in uh, robotics, among many other things. Uh, Ruslan uh, Gorodnichev in, in Sweden, who has a fantastic lab where we've gotten a tremendous amount of data from individuals that are uninjured. So we're trying a lot of these things with uninjured subjects and trying to understand the physiology of it. And then we come back to Los Angeles and do 
some of the spinal. This is Wen Tai Lu, is a person that's working with the new generation stimulation devices. And uh, he's one of the original engineers developing the retinal implant. So we're able to really take advantage of the, some of the latest technology to, to develop the new. So uh, Naranjo Latillorotny has been involved in the learning experiments from the beginning and has been uh, very important. Uh, Mandy Turner has been the organizer of uh, lab manager and then recently gone to Craig. And uh, of course, the contributions from our comrades in, um, in Louisville, uh, Susie Harkema and uh, Claudia, and the original uh, uh, surgeon that uh, implanted the first four subjects, uh, Jonathan Hodes. So, and uh, we've been fortunate to have funds from multiple sources over the years, um, but. It's way too too little, so uh, we everybody would like more funds. We're actually, I think, in an interesting situation now, where in the past <clears throat> I couldn't confidently say that if we had a lot more money, we could go faster. But now I think there's so many questions out there. There's no question that the limiting factor in progress at this point, not just for us, but in general, the limiting factor is the amount of money available. Thank you. To learn more about our scientists and the research of Kessler Foundation, go to www.kesslerfoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org. F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N dot O-R-G.